Are development institutions changing how they invest in the agriculture sector in Africa? Good morning, Africa. Welcome aboard your pulse on everything business in Africa. I am Mitha Dong. For more, follow us on Twitter at The K Financial and you can find me at Mitha Dong. More than 60% of the population of Sub-Saharan Africa is smallholder farmers and about 23% of the Sub-Saharan Africa's GDP comes from agriculture. According to a McKinsey and company study, for Sub-Saharan Africa to realize her full agricultural potential, it will need eight times more fertilizer, six times more improved seed and at least $8 billion of investment in basic storage. And this is not including cold chain investments for horticulture or animal products and also as much as $65 billion in irrigation to fulfill the agricultural promise. On the sidelines of the World Development Finance Forum, Samuel Adem Maitum, Director of Credit at the Uganda Development Bank, answers the question, what is the role of development finance institutions in helping Africa deliver on her potential in the agriculture sector? So I think where we start as a development finance institution is what, 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 uh, what are the core factors? So one is inputs. How do we link the providers of quality inputs with those that need them? How do we finance the whole value chain rather than look at the individual? Let us look at a crop, let us look at the entire value chain and see how we can intervene. One, if we provide the correct inputs, if we provide the correct appropriate technology. So it's not about using tractors to plow small five acre farms. There might be solutions, there might be a walking tractor, there might even be you know, other solutions that you know, people are coming up from time to time. So how do we finance innovation? How do we finance the kind of inputs that go into the ground? How do we finance the next stage agro-processing? How do we get that increased output? How do we solve problems like post-harvest losses? Because that's where some of the, the failings in the value chain are. Yes, we might be able to get them to produce more, but how do we ensure that the more they have produced makes it to the market so that we deal with the post-harvest losses. So that's where we go into things like silos, um, how do we get the aggregators together, how do we induce them to start agro-processing for the value addition? Because at the end of the day, how much value can you extract? How much um, longevity can you get in your crop? How long can you keep your crop? And, you know, sort of manage seasonality and all that. So how do we also deal with the issues like we are heavily reliant on rain, rain-fed agriculture. How do we get irrigation in there? So we have schemes like water for production, not only for the crop production, but also animal production. How do we get the farmers cooperating? So that's why we push for associations, we push for cooperatives, because there they can mobilize within themselves the kind of resources to secure loans. They also help monitoring, that self-monitoring of each other makes them more creditworthy. Then we also provide the non-financial solutions. We give them business advisory. We help with project preparation. Say a dairy group decides, I think we need to start packing our own milk. We need to make yogurt. We need to make butter. We need to make cheese. Then you have a project preparation team that helps them put that together, package it. We can finance it. If if we don't make it attractive enough for another institution or entity to come on board, we offer equity. So there's a whole range of projects that we are looking at along the entire value chain. 
Uh, we also have research, a research function that will look into what they can do. For example, they did research on one crop. They look at it across the value chain and then we tailor our interventions. And a look at the other stories making it into the podcast. Zambia reached a staff-level agreement with the International Monetary Fund over a bailout that will pave the way for negotiations with creditors to restructure about $16 billion in external debt. The agreement was confirmed by the IMF. Zambia first signaled plans to approach the IMF for assistance in 2014, followed by years of on-again, off-again talks. A program is now crucial for the government to press ahead with creditor negotiations under the group of 20 so-called Common Framework for Debt Restructuring. The government debt was at 129% of GDP in 2020, according to the IMF. In October, Zambia published a full list of its 44 external creditors that showed that the central government owes Chinese lenders more than a third of its total $13.4 billion of foreign currency debt. Staying with Zambia, their PMI increased to 518 in November from 51.2 in October. The latest reading points to a third consecutive month of expansion in the country's private sector activity and at fastest pace since June of 2018. Both output and new orders rose at the sharpest rate in close to three and a half years. As a result, firms raised their workforce and purchasing activity. On the produce front, purchase costs continued to fall amid recent currency appreciation, enabling farms to reduce their selling prices for the third month running. Egypt's PMI stood at 48.7 in November and changed from October, a five-month low, amid a loss of clan demand and slowdowns due to a global supply chain crisis. New orders fell at the fastest pace, for six months, leading to a decrease in the output, as well as renewed cuts in employment and purchasing. With staff capacity down, backlogs of work increased at the fastest rate since November 2020. Meanwhile, new export orders rose for the first time since August. On the price front, price inflation accelerated to the second quickest in over three years due to rises in shipping and energy prices. As a result, output prices rose to the second fastest since mid-2018. Finally, confidence weakened to the weakest in a year. Investors bought only 64% of the shares in the deeply discounted initial public offering by MTN Uganda. The IPO, which was open to East African investors from Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda and Burundi, raised 535.9 billion Uganda shillings. South Africa's MTN Group was selling a fifth of its stake in its Ugandan subsidiary at a price of 200 shillings per share. The IPO had been tipped to be Uganda's biggest ever and seen as a major boost to its stock market. A small boss with 40,000 investors trading just 17 stocks. The shares will start trading on Uganda Securities Exchange today. And here's a look at some of the things we'll be keeping an eye on this week. On December 6th, that is today, Ghana's PMI for November results will be out. December 7th, South African GDP data for the third quarter and also their reserves data and central bank government bond holdings for November. We'll also be looking at Mauritius inflation and reserves for November. And on December 8th, Namibia's interest rate decision and also Tanzania's inflation for November. December 9th, we'll be looking at 
South African third quarter current account and mining and also the manufacturing data for October and on December 10th, we'll keep our eyes peeled for Randa inflation for November. Thank you for always waking up with us. Good Morning Africa is a product of the K-Financial and if you have any suggestions or you want to check out more stories, visit our website. That is thekfinancial.com and don't forget to subscribe. You can also find us on all social media platforms at the K Financial and you can find me at Withadome.